we don't hear from you for a while, we realize that I just fell asleep. <laughs> Totally and it won't be our first interview where someone has fallen asleep when we interviewed them. They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two bald pastors. Welcome to Two Bald Pastors, a podcast about real faith and real life. I'm Jeff Sinabaldo. And I'm Joe McGarry. And we are two pastors serving in congregations in the New England Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Today we have a special guest to talk with us. We're talking with Dr. Rich Melheim. He is the CEO and founder of Rich Learning, Preschool Incubator, Faith Incubators, and my favorite, he is the author of a book about the Faith Five, which we're going to talk about uh, today. So welcome, Rich. So glad you could be with us today. Great to be with you both. And we uh, we just learned that Rich is back from Ethiopia. You want to tell us about your trip? <laughs> well, I was probably as stupid as I've ever been in my life because I was speaking in Indianapolis one weekend and Marlton, New Jersey the next weekend. So what the, what the heck, why not go to Ethiopia during the week for... 36 hours in the air and 42 hours on the ground. Wow. <laughs> well played, sir. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, we have started an incubator for early childhood education to bring access to excellence to the smallest of the small and the poorest of the poor. Cool. And we, um, if people want to buzz over to richlearning.com, you can see what we did in India and a little bit of uh, what we're hoping to do in China. Uh, basically, we took an approach that there are a handful of things that maximize attention and retention in the human brain, especially a brain born in poverty, mm. that can uh, fire up and wire up and light up and engage and excite a little brain. And as it turns out, it can also help with Alzheimer's. But Hopefully, I won't need that for a few more minutes <laughs> when Alzheimer's disease kicks in. Uh, but there's a handful That's... of things you can do to um, to a brain that don't cost any money at all that can get to just fire up and wire up a little brain. And it has to do with music, dance, theater, and art. Cool. Um, and I can get into a psychological, a sociological, a neurological, or a theological argument for how the arts uh, are great teaching tools, but you probably don't have a nine-hour uh, interview here, so just ask me what you want to ask me, and I'll, I'll tell you the elevator uh, uh, explanation. Yeah, that sounds good. Tell us more, uh, yeah, just a little bit about how the arts work and how that uh, helps brains connect. That would be yeah, um, and this will work for Sunday school. This will work for cross-generational learning. And if we were gutsy enough to think about uh, post-television, neo-Google world preaching, it might even work for worship. Uh, it starts out with the, what can you do to hook up the whole brain instead of just the ears for learning. And there are three things you need in a brain and one thing you need out of a brain to have attention and retention. The first thing you need in a brain, which you get when you're moving and dancing and being engaged, is oxygen. Oxygen is a little molecule that gives you attention in the human brain. 
It makes it through the brain-blood barrier without any problem at all. There's a barrier between the brain and the blood that keeps out bacteria and other large molecules, but oxygen is small enough to pop right in there, and oxygen gives you attention. You get it when you're moving your bodies, not when you're sitting in a chair, sitting at a desk, or for that matter, sitting in a pew. Yep. The, sec the second molecule you need in your brain for retention you get when you're moving your bodies is glucose. Glucose is the sugar, is the, the feeder of the nerve cells. So if you want attention and retention, you need both oxygen and glucose. Glucose also is a tiny little molecule that makes it through the blood-brain barrier, and you don't get it sitting in a desk, sitting in a chair, or sitting in a pew. The third thing you need in a brain in order to uh, really learn is a molecule that goes by the letters BDNF. I call it best darn nerve fertilizer. It's actually brain-derived neurotropic factor, but best darn nerve fertilizer, BDNF, if you want to Google it, uh, builds more nerve cells, it builds more connections on the nerve cells, and it builds more receptors on the connections of the nerve cells. Mm -hmm. And it, it acts just like a fertilizer when you get... Uh, uh, you. It, it, it gives you healthier nerve cells, and you put fertilizer in a field, you get a better yield. And that's what happens when you get the, the brain fertilizer. And it, too, you don't get when you're sitting in a desk, sitting in a chair, sitting, you know, sitting in a pew. So if we're spending 90% of our learning time sitting, we are just terrible stewards of, of the humor brain, human brain. You don't humor brain. There's a phrase. Humor brain. There you go. The like humor brain. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, in our teaching method, we spend 90% of our time on the move. The first thing I did in our India test is I, threw out, I went to our teaching room and I threw out all of the desks and all of the chairs. And the professional teachers are looking at me like, what, are you an idiot? And uh, I just, you know, we bought a foamy little carpet type thing that fit together like picture puzzles. The, desk, the uh, shoes went off and the kids come into the space and we learn everything first with music and dance, and then we turn it into theater and art. And then we hydrate, we water up. After about 20 minutes of movement, your brain is at maximum attention and retention for the next 20, 22 minutes, depending on your body size. Um, and then it's time to sit and talk about it after you've already done the active, engaged learning, embedding it into the brain in a way that it, that it works. And that's basically... Uh, how you can teach. If you talk to uh, um, David Williams at Harvard, who's the, the um, poverty in the brain expert, who's one of our advisors. If you talk to Dr. John Rady at Harvard, who wrote the book, uh, the, the book on ADD, ADHD, Driven to Distraction 20 years ago. If you talk to Marianne Wolf at Tufts University, who runs the Early Learning Literacy Lab, and is an expert in dyslexia and how can you learn and rewire or pre-wire the brain and how can you short circuit the short circuit of learning disabilities. If you talk to Dr. Annie Patel, who I met at the Neuroscience Institute in San Diego and is now at Tufts doing a, um, a longitudinal study on the phonological advantages of percussion in reading. All of these folks are, are four main neurologists who I'm working with. All of them will tell you the way we're learning in our schools today is, is not taking seriously the last five years of what we've learned about the human brain. Now that we have fMRI scans and PET scans, we're able to watch a human brain learn real time, not just with you know a slice of brain here and a slice of brain there with an, F, with an MRI. But we're able to literally say, 
what if we do this? What does it do to the brain hmm. to help the brain grow capacity? What if we do this? What if we do motion while we're learning? What if we do music while we're learning? What if we do music and motion while we're learning? Um, and they're all able to say the, the methods we're using in, in classrooms today, and one would have to argue from a you know, Christian education perspective, they're, they're, counter, they're intuitive to the teacher who's been trained in the last 200 years in the British method of education, sit still quietly while I'll teach and then take a test. Yeah. But they have nothing to do with the reality of what we've learned in the last five years. We've learned more about learning in the last five years than we have in the last 5,000 years. Because with fMRIs and with PET scans, we have a window to the learning brain, and we know exactly how the brain learns now, and we're not doing it. Yeah, that, it's fascinating, Rich. How did you Here get the um, connected the with this stuff and, and interested <laughs> in it? Because I, really... I was a bored dyslexic child. Yeah. <laughs> I had to draw pictures. Uh, I didn't read the way pe more normal people read, so it was painful for me to be handed Tillich or something like that. Yeah. Just totally painful. Don't give me 10-point type on a you know 400-page book. I, I can't do this. I had to learn in a different way. So I've always been interested in how does the brain learn. Um, when we started Faith Incubators in 1993, um, I was just taking a sabbatical for a year to talk about small group ministry. Uh -huh. And could and could we take the things that work at Bible camp and put them into confirmation? Um, in, in 93, when I took the 75-city road trip, which basically pushed the church from classroom models to large group, small group models with a little pastoral care and highs and lows built in. The average class really was a class, and it was sit in the chair while a pastor or a teacher teaches, um, you know, regurgitate the information, and then hopefully you're confirmed. But we know uh, from books like UnChristian and, and surveys from the ELCA's um, department, uh, we've gone from a million kids taking Christian education to 400,000. If any company in the country had a three-year, four-year training program, and at the end, three-fourths of the people quit, they would cancel the program, fire the managers, and they would question absolutely everything they're doing, or they'd go out of business. Right. Well, my particular church, I'm an ELCA pastor. I have a specialized ministry call to the St. Paul Area Synod. I have the best call in the church. I can do whatever I want as long as I never ask them for money. So, <laughs> I've been on my... Uh, my call since 93. So I've had a 23-year sabbatical. I highly recommend a 23-year sabbatical if you can pull it off. Um, but it's been very exciting to see the model in the church change in that time. I think the minimum was 35 cities a year, or the maximum was, I think I did 100 cities one year. But we just keep going on the road saying, hey, guys, let's try something else. Yeah. Let's try something else. And then let's take best practices. Let's take what's working and celebrate it and highlight it and, and turn it into methods and models and materials. And then if it's not working, let's learn why. Um, and th that's what we do with our incubators. We've done it now for you know 23 years with confirmation. And the average model today has a whole lot more large group, small group, and pastoral care involved. The cutting edge in confirmation ministry for us is we got to get the parents. And our point is every night in every home. We have to get the parents to commit to highs and lows and checking in and the whole Faith 5 thing. The next cutting-edge piece is the cross-gen ministry, which has taken off like crazy, and I'm so excited. I was just in um, 
in Fishers, Fishers uh, Indiana with Brian Dare mm -hmm. and talking about, you know, what if the norm was the wisdom of the elder and the wonder of the child in the same sacred space every week? And what if whatever happened on Sunday, whatever the text was in the pulpit, what if that was the text we lived with all week long and we go deep before we go wide and we, we uh, get, uh, you know, the, the four-year-old and the little pudgy hand and the old wrinkled hand in each other's hands and the highs and lows in each other's prayers all week long? Um, what would it look like if we were creating arts together in cross-gen communities and then uh, presenting them to each other? and sharing what the story meant, reaching hearts through the arts. I, I've really responded to the, the cross-gen stuff that you're doing, and, and I take a, a lot of interest in that. And that's something that, that the, the times that we have done it here in my uh, church, it's really been amazing to see the interaction and, and between the, the elders and, and the, the kids and uh, building those relationships and not, not just as... Uh, faces that you see in pews uh, on a Sunday, but having those real relationships and, and taking that model. I mean, the highs and lows is just amazing. It's such a simple thing to do uh, with our families, with our church, and it really gives people permission to go as deep or as wide as they, as they want to go or feel that they can or need to go. There's, a, there's an entire psychology, sociology, and neurology of highs and lows that match with the theology of rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And it's, it's an amazing thing what happens inside the human brain when you're releasing the dopamine from sharing the joy and the smile and the laughter. And when you're washing out the cortisol, which is the toxic stress hormone that when you're, when you're sad, when you're angry, when you're frustrated, when you're holding things inside, when you're not able to share the negative with anybody and it's you don't have that sacred safe space the the neurology is the most exciting thing to me because every everything i read about highs and lows and the neurology of releasing all of those good drugs tells me that god must have read some of those brain books this is really good stuff <laughs> it's, free. it's all free it doesn't cost a nickel to share your highs and lows no it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't, it doesn't cost a nickel to go deeper into the scripture and then and then the third piece the share read talk pray bless which is the faith5.org uh, share your highs and lows doesn't cost anything but you really bond and you strengthen you learn compassion and empathy uh, you go deep into the word and just stay with that scripture we, we've been pushing really hard for the last three years whatever the preaching story was on sunday whatever the preaching text was just take the core the kernel of that scripture and live with that all all week long yesterday it was the uh, water into wine and I told them, take the scripture when Mary says to the servants, do what he, whatever, whatever he tells you, okay? That's the core here. Mary, Mary knew who Jesus was and whose Jesus was. And so she turns to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So I told the people yesterday, take that scripture and just live with it all week long. Yeah. And do your highs and lows and then just go back, highlight that. What does it mean today? Do whatever Jesus tells you. Is he speaking to you? in the, the, the homeless person on the street? Is he speaking to you in the, you know, the angry coworker at work? Is, you know, do, what is he telling you? And then talk about it. And the moment you do the text context, the, the, your highs and lows is the context, scripture is the text, and you talk about it, 
God opens up all kinds of possibilities. You're doing theology. Karl Barth, the Reformed theologian, said the preacher should enter the pulpit with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. In other words, text, context, text, context. What if we were able to invite our people to enter every night with the Bible in one hand and your friend's life in the other, your child's life in the other, your, your significant other's life? Their highs and lows, that's really where they live. If, if you don't know their highs, you don't know them. If you don't know their lows, you don't know them. And if they don't know their own highs and lows, they don't know themselves either. So this is really both about other awareness and self-awareness and God awareness and putting those two things together. One of my favorite books on creativity is Stephen Johnson's Where Good Ideas Come From. He talks about the adjacent possible. The adjacent possible is a marvelous phrase. All innovation comes from putting things that normally don't go together in the same proximity, and I would say in the same sacred space in our context, the same set aside, you know, holy liminal sacred space, the adjacent possible of my highs and lows meet your highs and lows and something new can happen. Yeah, cool. Uh, your highs and lows meet this, the scripture text, text context, and something brand new that would never have happened can happen now just because they're in the same sacred space. That's the share, that's the read, the talk, the prayer. You can teach someone to pray intercessory prayer who's never prayed out loud in their life. You can teach it to them in 15 seconds if you can teach them active listening. What did uh, Joe say his high was? Thank God for it. Yeah. yeah. What did Joe say his low was? Ask the Holy Spirit for some help. Close in Jesus' name. Hey, you're a Christian. <laughs> you know, dear God, thank you that Joe... Um, got a good grade on his math test. Help, uh, help him with his dumb jerk girlfriend. In Jesus' name, amen. That's amen, it. amen. <laughs> Prayer lifted that. Uh, the, the lonely uh, silence of the soul, uh, dark night of the soul from Joe's you know, pain that he was keeping inside, it lifted it into the hands of the, the people around him who love him and now know him and... Uh, you can't love someone in the way they need to be loved if they won't let you into their pain. You've taken that off his shoulder into the community of the, the cellular church and quantum leaped it into the power of God who's on duty all night long. You've lowered his cortisol level, which means melatonin, which is the sleep drug, will have a chance to do its duty. If you go to sleep all worried about something or holding it inside, um, cortisol blocks the sleep drug melatonin. He's going to have a better night's sleep. Uh, go to the National Sleep Institute website, and it'll tell you about all the good things that happen when you get a full night's sleep. And you put it into the hands of God who's on duty all night long. You've taught the people that somebody heard them, that somebody uh, that, that somebody is praying for them, which prayer is uh, caring at a, a deeper, more intimate level. And you've taught them that we can just let go and let God. And it's it's all such a beautiful thing. And then the, the fifth piece of this faith5.org is just bless each other before you go to sleep. And there's a deep theology, there's a deep philosophy, there's a deep psychology, and as it turns out, uh, blessing itself releases endorphins that give you a lift and get rid of your cortisol. So all of those things can happen, and they're all free. And this is from a guy who sells curriculum, so <laughs> it's all free. If he's giving you something for free, you know it's good. <laughs> We've been we've been doing the Faith Five for a while as our family, and I uh, have introduced it in a number of places too. Uh -huh. I think the 
just a little feedback, the, um, the part where people mostly get stuck is what am I supposed to read? I love your concept of you just read what you read in a church. Uh, then you've got some more depth to it. I think that's, yeah. that's great. Yeah, go and, deep before you go wide. So, you know, yeah. do the story in as many post-television, neo-Google methods, interactive methods as you can. Um, you know, sing it, dance it, art it, do whatever you can during, during uh, fellowship hour or coffee hour to get everybody engaged in it. Uh, if you still have age-segregated classrooms, which I could do a, a four-hour diatribe against in this world, but, but I won't do that right now. You know, live with that same story. Do one thing and do it really well. Preach it, teach it, and then condense the, you know, in this story, what is the kernel? Yeah. If you're a music writer, what's the hook that's going to go in the chorus that you're going to put in the litany we're going to repeat over and over and over in our prayers? What's that piece highlighted in your, in your Bible's Put it on the front cover of the bulletin. And please, folks, just live with this one all week long. You don't have to jump from verse to verse to verse. My mentor, Len Sweet, calls that versitis. Just live with the verse <laughs> yeah. that tells you the, the context of the story. And uh, now we're going to all know it. The five-year-old is going to know the scripture by the end of the week, going over and over. I also say add sign language because there's an entire neurology of muscle memory. Once you put mu music to motion to sign, it's easier. You have more attention and you have more retention. Yeah. I can also share, uh, we, the blessing for us has been great. I mean, we do basically the same one every night, which is Jesus loves you and I do too. Yeah. And, um, you know, my kids are 12 and 10. We've been doing it for years. I mean, they, mm -hmm. if they don't get blessed, they're kind of ticked <laughs> off. You know, like if we're running later, it's like, okay, just go to bed. Like, well, aren't you going to at least bless me? You know, so it's, uh, it's good. It works. I, I can, I can tell you personally. And, oh, to it. and the other funny part is when the kids are mad at each other, they'll just yep. say, they'll just say, Jesus loves you and walk away. <laughs> Jesus loves you, but I think you're a, <laughs> they say that without saying it, but, uh, um, you have your own anecdotal evidence, the power of ritual. One of the things about ritual is it can hold you when you can't hold yourself. Right. And getting into the motion, I used to think that it was uh, emotion that led to motion, but it's nearly as true neurologically that motion leads to emotion because getting into the physical motion, uh, it starts to trigger other cues and clues in the human brain that pull out the emotion. So, yeah, get into the motion. And then I strongly suggest mark your kids with the sign of the cross every night. A kiss and a cross, a kiss and a cross, a kiss and a cross. In Deuteronomy 6, where it says, bind it as a sign on their hand and fix them as an emblem between their eyes, right on the other side of your forehead is your, your uh, half-inch, quarter-inch wrinkled neocortex about the color of raw liver and the consistency of an avocado, wherein all of your deeper adult judgment will be centered. Mm. And when, when you mark something on their forehead, you're a quarter-inch away from where they're going to make their adult decisions the rest of their lives. Mark them with the sign of the cross again and again and again and again and again. Uh, brand them with the brand, the most powerful brand that means sacrifice and dying love and rising love. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. So get that cross in there. My degree is in semiotics, which is all about symbols and signs. And the cross is the most powerful symbol in the history of the world. Mark them with that kind of love. And uh, God loves you, and so do I, and here's your cross. 
make that physical thing part of it. Beautiful. Rich, I know that you uh, are a big advocate for doing the Faith Five just before bedtime with, with many parents, including my own family, who uh, love the Faith Five, who, who do it on a regular basis, but sometimes not always together in the evening. Right. Um, is, is there other ways to be able to connect in, in that way? Oh, yeah. I mean, any time is better than no time. Right, or right. Some people find meals really special. You know, turn off the television, put the cell phone in the refrigerator, and you know, look at each other while you're talking. Yeah, right. Um, uh, drive time might really work well. But there is uh, an entire um, neurology of sleep, and this is in the book Holding Your Family Together. It's the epilogue called Why Nighttime is the Right Time, which will explain to you that uh, the last few drowsy minutes before you go to sleep and the first few drowsy moments when you wake up are literally the most powerful time in the human brain to uh, build life philosophy, to hardwire learning, to build attitude and aptitude. Uh, The best time for Christian education is literally moments before you go to sleep. Uh, Just like Netflix, whatever is in the queue on the front screen is the most likely thing that's going to get watched tonight. The last few things you do right before you go to sleep have the biggest chance of going into the rapid eye movement dream phase and then digging out associative memories from the slow wave movement. When you go through your, um, your sleep phase from your dream phase, your brain is replaying key events of the day symbolically uh, thousands of times over. This is in the book Brain Rules, Brain Rules uh, by Dr. John Medina, who's a molecular biologist, University of Washington. Um, and brain, you can go to brainrules.com and see, see about this as well. But his chapter on sleep is worth the price of the entire book. He says, during rapid eye movement, your brain is replaying the key events of the day and the last few things that were in the queue thousands of times over, and it's symbolically bouncing them up against all kinds of seemingly random things. Part of your brain shuts off during uh, sleep, and part of your brain comes vividly alive. The part of your brain that shuts off is the logic centers, uh, the centers that have to deal with, you can't fly, you can't do this, you can't do that. And what happens is the part of your brain that's filled with visual and emotion comes very much alive. If you listen to a brain uh, during your waking hours, you'll hear the firing and the crackling of neurons. Hmm. If you listen to a brain during dream phase, you'll hear (laughs) your brain is just completely wide awake and alive, crazy alive during dream phase. After the dream phase, it goes into some other phases, but the most important one next is the slow wave movement where your brain takes those key things that were at the front of the queue and it goes deep into your memory banks and it searches out what is called associative memories. It's looking for something to help you think through this day, to deal with this problem, to deal with whatever you said your low was today and how am I going to solve the bully on the playground mm-hmm. or my best friend moving away or my, you know, I, I didn't get, I didn't pass my, you know, graduate record exam. You know, whatever your problem was, your brain is looking for solutions and they're able to watch the brain during sleep tests and go here we're going into this phase you're, they can watch it it's moving to a different part of the brain 
It's literally going to the bank. What did you put in the bank? And by the way, that's the reason not to have your scripture on your cell phone. It's the reason they have your scripture in song and motion and emotion and you know all through your body. At Faith Incubators, we put we have 265 scriptures in song and we're putting in a sign language. Let's learn it with our whole body. Put your scripture inside yourself, not just on your cell phone. Then it goes through these phases again and again and again about every 90 minutes. And the more uh, sleep you can get, the more it gets replayed and replayed and researched and researched and replayed and replayed and researched and researched. And in those few drowsy liminal moments while you were waking up, while you slumber in your bed, according to the book of Job, chapter 30, that's when God opens up your eyes. There's this weird verse in Job 30. God speaks in one way and in two, though people do not perceive it. In a dream and a vision of the night, rapid eye movement, rapid eye movement, rapid eye movement. When deep sleep falls on mortals, slow wave movement, slow wave movement. And then when they slumber in their beds, God opens up their ears. I read that after understanding the neurology of sleep and neurology of when you lie down and when you rise. And it sent chills and shivers up my back. I've trained myself now to lay in bed for at least five minutes when I wake up and just say, okay, God, what do I need to know? Hmm. And if the last thing you think about and talk about right before you go to bed uh, is those highs and lows and you prayed about them, that's the first thing in the queue of your brain Netflix thing. And if the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning, okay, God, what do I need to know? And it is, it is shockingly, beautifully mystical, magical how, how God can give you what you need to know for the day if you decide the last thing and the first thing uh, is going to be, you know, my encounter with uh, the highs and lows of my loved ones and their encounter with mine, my encounter with God in the word and in prayer and in blessing. So if you do it at dinner and then, uh, you know, you have three more hours and you watch 18 murders or you get 40 texts from your neurotic friend, uh, what you've done is you have moved it out of the queue. Mm -hmm. And the other thing you've done um, uh, neurologically is you have given yourself some really good dopamine with all that positive from the highs and lows and the talking and the praying. And you have washed away the cortisol through the pastoral care of loving each other and hugging each other and kissing each other and saying goodnight with a peace. And you have dumped, uh, so you, you, you've lost your dopamine, the pleasure drug, and you've dumped in more cortisol, which blocks melatonin, the sleep drug. So at dinner, three more hours before you go to bed, and you've bumped the the best chance of God speaking to you out of the queue for your dream phase. Great stuff. Uh, how about um, you know parents, families, who say, "Well, that all sounds great, but I don't think I'm qualified for this, or I I don't have a, a theology degree. I don't know what I'm talking about." Uh, how would you respond to them? Uh, I would say to the parent, if you have survived adolescence, you are eminently qualified. <laughs> <laughs> you are qualified. If you love that kid more than life itself and you would jump in front of a speeding truck for that kid without thinking twice, you are eminently qualified. I'd say to a mother, if you went up two dress sizes and turned prematurely gray for this kid, you are eminently qualified <laughs> because you've got all of the love. And when it comes right down to it, if your kid comes home 
at 27, broke with two kids and a dog. They're not coming to the pastor's house. They're coming home to you mm. because they know how much you love them. Yep. The, the prodigal son knew he had a place at home, even though he had messed completely up. Uh, a line I always use is you can't come back to a place you've never been. The kid knows where the, the real love is, and you are Christ to them. And from the moment you held them in your arms, um, uh, Esther Meek writes, uh, the mother is the first other. Two bald pastors. It's in my brain. I just watched The Intern on the plane, one of the nine movies I watched on the way home from Ethiopia. <laughs> uh, Anne Hathaway and Robert De Niro. And there's this, there's this amazing little scene in there where uh, Anne and Robert are in a bar with three of her VPs for her fast-growing tech company. And they're all in sloppy T-shirts and half-grown beards and everything. And she looks at Robert De Niro, who's in a nice suit and a tie, and she laments for about 30 seconds that, you know, where did the men go? Mm. We've, we've, uh, we've lifted the women so they can't be called girls anymore. They're women, but we've turned the men into boys and let them be childish, immature slobs. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the men were let down and allowed to play video games at 32 and live with their mother and, and wear their dirty T-shirt. We let them become boys in, at the same time. So the, the women got empowered and the men got disempowered. Mm -hmm. What do we do? Could, could we be adults? And what would it take for us to be adults? Could you talk a little bit more about killing Sunday school and what that means and uh, hopes yeah. you have around that? Yeah, that's our most exciting incubator right now. Um, in our, in our um, quote-unquote secular company, the Preschool Incubator Project is our most exciting incubator, but in the church right now. Um, in 2012, Inskeep came out with a study from the ELCA. I'm an ELCA pastor, and it showed a graph that was absolutely devastating of membership uh, I can send you the link to that if you want. A membership in Sunday school in the ELCA. It went from a million plus to six, uh, to 402,000 uh, members in the life of the ELCA. Yep. And that graph came, and I thought, well, everybody's going to get up in arms. There's going to be conferences. There's going to be call to action. The bishops are going to grab it. And everybody's going to you know do something with it. And it came and left without a single blip on the screen. Actually, you know what happened is they dropped that category in your uh, report. <laughs> Each congregational report dropped that as a category. No, that's what it, we it was. Yeah, it's too painful. Let's pretend it doesn't exist. Right, you know? exactly. It, and, you know, stupid. How short-sighted can we be? What can Would somebody like to talk about this? So uh, I, uh, you know, asked on, the, our, um, on our Faith Incubators network, Blog. We got about, I don't know, 4,500, I don't know, 6,000 people who we talk to all the time. And these are more people who it's not just can these bones live, but should these bones live? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, should we do something? Does anybody want to talk about this? And we we got uh, our, our uh, nonprofit um, foundation, Faith Incubators Foundation. Uh, we, we said, if, if you want, we'll host a think tank on this. We call it a think tank, a Faith Incubators tank. Yep. We'll host a think tank. Who wants to come to Colorado? Uh, and the first 12 who want to go to Colorado, come on, we'll, we'll host this sort of thing. We've got a place to stay, and 
we'll put up the food and we'll simply say, well, you know, what's going on here? And is there anything as systems thinkers, what are the key pieces of the system that we would have to put in place to do to make any good at all? A dozen churches came from a dozen different states and we had each of them uh, present and say, so when you've done really great family ministry, what, what were the elements of it? Uh, what are the, the psychological advantages of having the wisdom of the elder and the, the uh, wonder of the child in the same sacred space? What are the sociological and bonding advantages? What are the theological mandates uh, to teach your own children and not outsource it and to, to have the, the one generation telling the next generation? We did that retreat and uh, we invited each church then to go home that year and try something, try anything, but make sure it had a handful of elements. Number one, don't call it Sunday school. The moment you call it Sunday school, men aren't coming. Right. Uh, the right. moment you call it Sunday school, there's going to be a whole bunch of baggage, and um, well, I don't want to live with this baggage. Uh, number two, make sure the pastor's involved. And if the pastor, who's the main cross-generational teacher in the church anyway, if the main teacher's not there, it's not going to work, period. Uh, worship is, in most churches, the only regular cross-generational anything that they have. Right. You know, if if they let the kids there and don't just kick them out to the, you know, the, the children's room. Number three, call the parents to every night in every home. And if they do Faith Five, great. If they don't, do something where they're engaging with um, each other's lives and with prayer. If you can, you know, sneak in the Sunday preaching text, you know, power to you. If it's called devotions, that'll scare a lot of people away. But so... You know, make sure that it's that it's regular. Make sure that it's uh, cross-generational. Uh, make sure the pastor's involved. So people went home, and some people did more worship with educational elements and pastoral care, highs and lows elements in the worship. Some people did education and snuck in Holy Communion. And the moment you bring in Holy Communion to education, you know, throw in the Lord's Prayer too. You can call it worship, right? Right, so right, right. The, the word we coined is edu-worship blending a little bit of worship and education. Uh, some people used their Wednesday night dinner time uh, before people went to their own, you know, groups and choirs and education and stuff, and they, they were intentionally cross-generational. My favorite one was Bridget Weir in Lakeland, uh, Lakeview, Colorado. She did Lent Zanya, Lent Zanya, <laughs> where the moment you walk through the door, uh, you have to have at least four generations at each table or they don't get their lasagna. Yep. And then, then you do highs and lows. You write the highs and lows on butcher paper on the, the, the table there. She handed out the scripture for the for the Lenten service, which would follow. She broke the pericope into pericopes. So this table gets two verses. This table gets two verses. This table gets two verses. So highs and lows, scripture, talk about it. Uh, and part of the talk then is each table had to present to the whole group how their scripture met with their highs and lows, pray for each other, bless. And at the end of that, they walked into the worship service, got to sing the old traditional hymns to keep the senior citizens happy. But the preacher got to preach having just heard how the people did a text study on that text, which meant the sermon was even better. <laughs> it was yeah. as fresh as five minutes ago. So anyway... Um, we, we had a dozen churches trying things, and I just, I love this case study approach where go do something and I'll tell us about it. Yeah. The best graduate programs in the world do
do mostly case studies. And if your highs and lows are bouncing against the scripture, that's a case study, right? They went home, they tried this, and we came back a year later. So that was 2013. And everybody presented what they had done. They had to tell us what worked with the method we used, the, what didn't work, and how are we going to make it better next year. At the end of that retreat, I said, great, next year you're the keynoter at a conference and you're writing a book of a dozen case studies. We called the book, Let's Kill Sunday School Before It Kills the Church. If we had called the book, Alternative Methods of Christian Education for the 21st Century, we would have sold three books. But instead, yep. we sold out on the first printing and our, in our second printing. And the buzz started happening, and today we have, um, I don't know, 4,500 churches on the, the Let's Kill Sunday, or Killing Sunday School Birthing Cross-Gen Worship Facebook group. Um, we did our second conference, and we bumped six of the groups uh, who had done the first year to emeritus. We brought in six new churches, and what we're going to do every year now until the cows come home or Jesus comes or the flood rises, whichever comes first, is we will do a conference every fall where there's a dozen case studies presented of pioneers who are blending worship with education with the nightly home huddle with cross-generational ministries. This next year, it'll be the um, first week in October, and it'll be out at uh, Estes Park again. Uh, you know, if God is calling you to the mountains at the height of elk bugling and leaf season <laughs> start thinking right now and as that great theologian of the church neil diamond said pack up the babies and grab the old you know bring your group out <laughs> cool and let's uh let's see if we can help you figure out what to do when sunday school is dead and gone sunday school is going to die as we know it is going to die on our watch whether we want it to or and believe it's going to happen or not people just don't want to teach anymore. They want to be with their kids. They don't want to commit. But if prime time on Sunday morning went to prime purpose of rebuilding what for the most of Christian history up until the late 1700s was, of course, faith in the family first, of course, the elder and the child in the same uh, you know, proximity, living and sharing and being part of the faith, uh, uh, if that's something that you want to be proactive about rather than just waiting for everything to die and disappear, um, then we really need to talk and we need to get enough people trying enough things uh, and celebrating those things. And that's what we're going to be doing probably. Well, it'll take 10 years to figure this out. Uh, it took us 240 years to get into this mess. It might take us 10 years to get out of it. <laughs> Well, so much, yeah, so much good stuff, Rich. It, it's just, uh, I, I've really enjoyed uh, listening about all this and, and thinking through, you know, the ideas that you are sharing and saying, what what can I uh, be utilizing in my own congregation? You know, we've tried uh, a number of things and we've had seen some successes, seen some failures in, in attempting cross-generational uh, faith formation. And, and I think one of the things that we can do more of, at least in my congregation, is 
some of these elements in worship because it, we talk about wanting to try new things, different things in worship, but it's it's finding the, the appropriate resources that'll work with our own contextual uh, style of worship as well that would that would really kind of make an impact for people and have people really be drawn to that and and be uh, engaged in that in, in something different than what they're traditionally used to. You bet. Um, two pieces of advice. Number one is if you have uh, new members who joined in the last three years, those are the people to test new things on. Right. Uh, number two, whatever names you read each year on All Saints Day, go find the surviving spouse, and that's where you get your elders. Mm. The, the trunk of the tree brings the water up, but all the sugar happens on the leaves on the new growth. The tree is fed by the new growth, and uh, it, it, you know, you, you're sustaining members and all of that. That's great. You have your structure in place, but if you find the the new people who've just been joined and you say, "Hey, would you try something with me for six weeks?" Yeah. Um, and if you can't do six weeks, you know, just a month and a half. Yeah, you know. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Put them into cross gen, intentional. Uh, faith families or gift families, I like the word gift, we're using generations and faith together. Um, and just say, would you would you live in co- covenant for six weeks together? The person who has had that uh, loss, the elder who's had that loss, is literally under a, an immuno- immunological attack from the stressors of grief. We used to think that the opposite of love was hate. Well, hate, but biologically, the opposite of love is grief. Mm. It's the same chemicals you get when you're feeling loved and valued and touched and all that, they get eaten to pieces by the stressors of grief. And so you can give life to that elder with such loss by giving them a faith family, by putting that pudgy little hand in their old wrinkled hand and somebody who knows their highs and lows. And they get to, they get more endorphins by praying for the child. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just amazing thing. So if you're going to try something new, Consider something old and something new. Yep. As you do that. Yep. And then uh, be willing to admit what's not working, and you're you're going to learn more from what doesn't work than what does work, and that's why you need to bond and connect with people who are trying things as well, and that you know, as a church together, we can be so much stronger. Every church doesn't have to make the same mistake. They, they say a smart person learns from their mistakes. A wise person learns from somebody else's mistakes. <laughs> so, you know, bond together with this group that's trying to figure this out, that's willing to lay on the barbed wire and yell over me. And uh, we might be able to create many methods, models, and materials that can give great life. Nobody wants uh, faith formation to die. Sunday school might die, but we absolutely need faith formation. But right. Information is different than information. And if you want the optimal cauldron for this, it probably isn't what the school is doing with every age and, you know, age-appropriative cognitive learning in each place. The time for age-appropriative cognitive learning is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night, when you're sharing your highs and lows and discussing that scripture at that level but you're doing it with the parents who, by the way, Martin Luther said they're supposed to be doing it anyway and not outsourcing it. All right, right. Rich, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Well, blessings to you all. And if they want to go to talk about the cross-gen 
go join the Facebook uh, group, Killing Sunday School Birthing Cross-Gen uh, Worship. If they want to talk about just the, the pieces of the Faith Five, um, go to faithfive.org, and we also have a Facebook group uh, for that. Um, if they want to come to a cross-gen conference where churches are being completely honest and transparent about what they tried, how they bombed, uh, then in the first week in October next fall, you know, come and join us. We, we'd love to have more. Great. Yeah, we'll put that out there. We'll put all, all the links uh, to, to be able to connect with you and to connect with uh, the different groups that you are a part of and that you have started. And, and hopefully more and more congregations will be able to enhance what they are already doing um, in faith formation by implementing some of these things that we've talked about today. So thank you so much for sharing that. And, and uh, thank you for taking the time, especially uh, after your big trip to, to spend some time with us today. So thank you again for joining us for another episode of Two Bald Pastors, where real faith meets real life. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can check us out on twobaldpastors.com or our own Facebook group, facebook.com backslash twobaldpastors. So thank you again, and we hope you have a wonderful day. God bless. They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two bald pastors.